These are all fairy tales. Now, what is a fairy tale all about? The plot seems to go pretty much as this. What will happen is, is we get to know a character. The character's life is going well. Then about a third of the way through the story, something happens in the character's life that brings them trouble, that brings them pain, that brings some sort of discomfort. Maybe it's a villain. Maybe it's a certain set of circumstances. And for about another third of the movie, we see the main character finding themselves in a world of trouble. But then, just as when it looks at it as, as if it's at its darkest moments, somebody enters the stage. Usually because most of them are about ladies, a man comes onto the stage riding a horse or, or in Aladdin's case coming in in a great parade. And he's going to be the hero. He's going to be the one that is going to help that damsel in distress and take her to a place where she's ought to be. That's a story. The hero or the heroine you watch is a fairy tale. I watched uh, with a group of guys from church here. We went to go see the, the newest Die Hard movie. This guy uses a car to crash a helicopter by jumping a toll booth. That's a fairy tale. But I'll tell you what, we loved it. And a fairy tale for us as men, even though we don't think we watch fairy tales, we do. What we are hoping for is that this great leader, this great uh, cop or, or whoever he may be, is going to accomplish his mission at hand. And he's going to get the villain. And he's going to take care of it. And at the end of the day, he's going to come back. He's going to put his guns in his holster. And he's going to say, it was a good day. I've taken care of what I need to. And he's going to ride off into the sunset. For some of my older male friends, Western movies were fairy tales. They'd go clean up town, and then they'd get on their horse and ride off into the sunset and live happily ever after. Now, my wife doesn't pick up those types of movies when she goes to the video store. She picks up another type of fairy tale, one that seems to be more appropriate for women. And what that is, is it's a movie where a plot is put together where two people are having all kinds of difficulty coming together in a love relationship. Whatever it may be, something seems to keep them from being able to fall in love and to live out that life. Well, Wikipedia says it's not just completing a mission, but it's also seeing two people fall in love. And that is a fairy tale ending where everything comes together in the end and all the different difficulties they had and struggles that took place, in the end they come together and they either get married or they fall in love and they live happily ever after. Well, I want you to know that we as Christians whether you like the title or not, live in a life because of Jesus Christ that is a fairy tale ending. Because there's nothing in this world that can compare to the ending that Jesus Christ has for his people. There's nothing. No author has the right words to be able to explain what is being prepared, the Bible says, for those that God loves. We have a fairy tale ending. In fact, folks, we live in a fantasy world. As If you think about it, the unbelievers will wonder, how can you have hope? How can you believe that one day you will be in a place of celestial bliss called heaven? How can you believe in that? You live in a fantasy world. And I'll tell you, yes, we do. Because if you look at it from a human mind frame and a human uh, standpoint, you will learn that it is a fantasy world. What we believe is a fantasy, but I will tell you, it is completely true. It's completely true and it's completely trustworthy, not because I say it or someone wrote something about it, but because God said it. And what God says, he says, will be he'll be faithful to see in the end. The world looks at it and says it's a fantasy. We look at it by faith and we see what we hope for that is going to come to fruition. Now, the book of Ruth could have started with the words once upon a time. And in chapter four, we could have seen it close out by saying, and they lived happily ever after. It's that kind of story. Now, a little girl had learned the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and she was so excited she wanted to tell someone about it, so she grabbed her mother, and she began to tell her the story. And when the little girl got to the place where the prince kisses Snow White and awakens her from her sleep, the little girl says, Mother, do you know what happened next? The mom, knowing the story, said, yes, dear, they lived happily ever after. She says, no, mom, they didn't. They got married. <laughs> well, some of you may have a happily ever after marriage. I hope all of you do. 
But they didn't do that. They got married. In the case of Boaz, yes, they did get married, and then they lived happily ever after. As we look at these last couple verses from the book of Ruth, I want us to understand what our fairy tale ending looks like. Because you know what? Just like Ruth, as we look at the life of Ruth, we are reminded about who we are. I've told you numerous times that as we look at this earthly man named Boaz, he is a picture of a heavenly Boaz named Jesus Christ. Just like Ruth, when she was working in the field, so you and I as Christians are called to work in the fields of our heavenly Boaz. And just like Boaz, one day he takes Ruth to be his wife, so one day as well, our heavenly Boaz will pull us from the field and he will make us his bride. If you don't know the book of Revelation, you know that the book of Revelation tells us that there will be a marriage that will take place in heaven, where our heavenly Boaz will take us, his children, to be his bride. And that will be the greatest day that we have ever known Because at that point, our redemption will culminate in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, how do we achieve that? How do we get to that point? How do we get to a place, to that happily ever after uh, finality in our life? How do we get there? There are three areas that I want to look at this morning by looking at our text. So if you're in Ruth chapter 4, we're going to start in Ruth chapter 4, verse 12. And I would ask, as our tradition is, to stand for the reading of God's Word And as we look together at Ruth chapter 4, verses 12 through 22, it says, Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel, for he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. There's a name for you to name your children, Ram. The father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, And Jesse, the father of David. Bow with me for a word of prayer. Father God, as we close out this book, Father, I pray that just as you've opened my eyes to my own redemption, to your love for me, while I was nothing, you made me something. You brought me into your family. You've poured out your grace and mercy upon me. Father, I pray that these truths, these truths from your word would enlighten our hearts. Father, I pray that as we close out this book, that the truths that we have been reminded of and have been taught would remain true in our heart. That, Father, just as the town folk, the town women of Bethlehem said, praise be to the Lord that because of your grace and your redemption and the gifts you give us, that we would worship you and praise your holy name. So, Father, I pray as we continue in this now that you would be with me and that my words would be your words. And that your people would be able to be taught the living and active word of God. To you be all the glory in Jesus' name and all God's people said. You may be seated. If we desire for a happily ever after ending in our lives, three things must become true. The first thing that we see in our text today is that Ruth's fairy tale ending is fulfilled after a season of waiting. This fairy tale ending is fulfilled after a season of waiting. Now remember back to last week when we talked about Ruth and Boaz. When Ruth goes to Boaz and says, Boaz, will you spread your garment over me? A proposal for marriage is given. What she's saying is, will you be my protector? Will you be my husband? Will you be my redeemer? 
Now, she's given two answers, one from Boaz and another from Naomi. And I want to hit on that for a moment. So look back, if you're in Ruth 4, to Ruth 3 for a moment. We're going to center our thoughts on Ruth 3, 13 through 18 for a moment. Because look at what answer is given to Ruth. First of all, Boaz tells her in verse 13, look at what he says. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if this other man wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. So lie here until morning. Then Ruth gets home. And Ruth heads home and she goes to Naomi. And she tells Naomi what is going on. That there's a possibility that Boaz may uh, has promised to um, redeem Ruth. Naomi's words to Ruth in verse 18 say the following. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Now, that redemption that Ruth rightly desired had a point in time where she had to wait for it. Now, you would say, well, it only took a matter of a couple hours. That after her night with Boaz, after they've talked, he says, wait at my feet and uh, hang out, and I will go see if this other guy will redeem you. And if he doesn't, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. So he goes out that next morning, and he goes to find that man, and he redeems that morning at the city gates, Ruth and Naomi and all the land of Elimelech, Ruth's father-in-law. Now, we could think that way, or we could think that this waiting process for redemption began the moment that Ruth leaves Moab with Naomi. And what does Ruth say? Ruth is uh, about to head out. She's a couple miles outside of the city of Moab. And Naomi says, hey, girls, you, uh, Ruth, Orpah, go back home. Go back to your gods. Go back to your family. Go back to the way you used to live. And Orpah says, you know what? Sounds good. I'm going to take off. God bless you. I'm heading home. But Ruth, it says, clung to Naomi. And what does she say? The great testimony of Ruth early on in her walk with God. What does she say? She says, Naomi, no, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Now, why does she say that? I believe she's saying that, saying, I've seen something in your life, Naomi. I've seen something. I've heard something about your God. And I'm going to put him uh, up as a place of prominence in my own life. And I'm going to let him figure my life out. I'm going to let him do it. He's going to be the one, good, bad, or ugly. I'm going to move forward with that. And I wonder if all this time she's sitting there saying, is this God of Israel going to come to my aid? Well, it's important that we look at a couple words here this morning. We see the word uh, stay. It says stay here for the evening. And then in verse 18, we see that Naomi gives the word wait. Stay and wait. Two completely different words in the original Hebrew, but have that have identical meanings. Both of them give this picture, the picture of patience in waiting or abiding or remaining, very similar to what Jesus tells us as believers in the, in the Gospel of John, to remain or to abide in Him. But this also involves a caveat, that this patience, this waiting, this abiding is absent of any worry. This is not fretting over what's going to happen. This isn't uh, being told by the doctor, go ahead and wait for um, some reports, and we'll find out what is going to happen. Now, a couple weeks ago, no, it's been a month or so, uh, Noah had gotten pretty sick, and uh, we were watching his glands get bigger and bigger, and I kept saying, don't worry about it, it's just a cold, honey, don't worry about it. She wakes up one morning, she says, Tim, the glands are bigger than his head, we can't see his eyes. I said, no, nah, it's time to take him to the doctor. So we take him to the doctor, and we're not sure what's going on, and and they said, well, something's wrong. He's got something. We're not sure what it is. And the doctor says, it's one of two things. He says, either it's mono or he says it could be leukemia. You're going to have to wait and find out. Gee whiz, thanks, doc. So we go home. Well, we first go to the hospital to do the test. And we're sitting there. And, and I know I'm wondering in my head, Lord, am I ready for this? Is this what you're going to do? Is this your plan? Lord, it's one or the other, and I've been told to wait. You know how difficult it is to wait? To wait on something that you've wondered about? To wait 
And we waited, and it was five hours. And I tried to go to work. I went back, and, and I'm working on the computer, and the guys are talking to me at work, and I'm saying, you know what? I, I can't do it. I cannot work while I'm waiting. So I came home. And I said, you know, Lord, we're prepared for whatever you're going to do, but this waiting is a killer. I will tell you that, of course, Noah's healthy and fine. He's got, he had mono, and he's healthy now as a result of all that. But waiting was a killer. And I'm learning it's more difficult to wait on a question about a child than it is about your own body or your own circumstances. But this is what Ruth is commanded to do, to wait. She has been waiting now for months about this redemption. She's wondered she's headed off with her bitter old mother-in-law who lost her husband in a foreign land. So she says, I'm going back. Ruth 1.6 says that she goes back to Bethlehem because God has shown favor to his people and has taken care of their needs. And Ruth says, I'm going to go with you. I don't know anybody there. I'm not really sure I know your God, but I love you and I'm going to follow after you, Naomi. And that's what I'm going to do. Now, we know that Ruth was a widow as well. And she's waiting. Waiting is a difficult thing to do. But how could she wait without anxiety? How could she wait without fear. It's seen in the promise, first of all, that's given by Boaz. She's able to wait without fear or anxiety because there's a promise. Look at verse 13. As surely as the Lord lives, I will see that your redemption will be taken care of. There's a promise that is given. Now, in my circumstances, I need to be very careful not to become anxious or worry. Why? Well, Ruth wasn't supposed to worry because there was her heavenly, or I'm sorry, her earthly master said, don't worry about it. It's taken care of. I'll deal with it. I'll take care of it. We have a heavenly father who has come and he says what in Philippians? Do not be anxious for anything. Even those tough things that when your little boy Noah might be sick and might have some terrible illness, you don't worry. Why? Because we are to give things all to God in prayer. And he says, I'll take care of it. Now, it may not be the answer that I want, but I've got a heavenly father who says, I work out all things for the good of those who love me and are called according to my purposes. Now, if I hold to that, then I should not worry, but I should be just as this Hebrew word, these two Hebrew words give us the picture of, of waiting without being anxious. And that's what us as, we as Christians are called to. It involves a promise. She, she doesn't need to worry about it because Boaz says it's going to be taken care of. But look at where she finds herself waiting. There are two places. First of all, we see the place of her waiting. It says in verse 14, So she laid at his feet until morning. Very quickly, Ruth is commanded. Boaz says, all right. I want you to wait here. Now, he's got very, uh, reasons for protection for having Ruth stay there. And she says, he says, wait at my feet. I'll get back to that for a moment. But then the second thing we see are the people involved in the waiting. The text tells us that she doesn't go uh, to the girls that she's been hanging out with in the fields and say, hey, I, I asked Boaz to marry me and I'm not sure what he's going to say. He says he's going to take care of it. Girls, what do you think? You know, should I have done this? Should I wear the Chanel number no. five instead of this uh, perfume? What, what do you think? She doesn't do that. Does she go to Boaz, as assistant manager in the field and say, talk to your boss. Tell him I really, really, really need him to marry me. I love him and I want him to be my husband. Go talk with him. You, you have a way with words, assistant manager. Go do that. No, that's not what he says either. There are a couple of things I want us to pull from this text today in parallel to our own lives. There is a place where we wait and there are people who we involve in our waiting. Because whatever the circumstances may be, if you call yourself a child of God this morning, then you are waiting for something. I don't know if you're aware of it, but we are waiting for the coming of our Lord. Why? Because the coming of our Lord has been promised. In fact, the last words of the Bible speak about, it says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. The last words of our scriptures that we have as the revealed will of God is that Jesus is coming back. And we're waiting for that. But where are we to do that waiting? Because that waiting can be difficult. I don't know about you, but as I wait, it's difficult at times. Doubt begins to fill my mind. Is, is Jesus really going to come back? I wonder if that day Ruth was asking the question, well, you know, is it on his schedule? Is, is it going to be taken care of? Does he really mean what he says, that he will take care of this redemption? 
No Christian in their right mind can say without lying that doubt from one time or another doesn't fill your heart and your mind about the coming of our Lord Jesus. Is it real? Is it true? I believe it with all my heart. But that doesn't mean there aren't those times that we doubt. So what are we to do as we wait for the coming of our King? The coming of our heavenly Boaz? It involves, first of all, a place. Remember, she waited at the feet of Boaz. There's proximity there. She's laying at his feet. There's a posture there. That means that she's submitting and she's being humble and showing a sense of humility and saying, I'm not worthy to lay next to you. I'm going to lay at your feet as a sign of my subjection to your authority, to your lordship, and to you being my master. That's something that we need to know as people. As we wait for the coming of the Lord, as we wait for questions that come up in our lives, we don't wait anywhere. We wait at the feet of Jesus. We wait in close proximity to Him saying, You are the one that has the answer, Lord. I'm going to wait on You at Your feet. To show my humility, to show my submission, to show my subjection to Your Lordship and Your Lordship alone. But look at who it involved. It involved two people. The people that were involved in his waiting, in her waiting, were two people. It involved Boaz and it involved Naomi. Ruth goes back. She heads to her house and she says, all right, Naomi, this is what happened. I asked him to spread the garment over. He said, okay, I'll take care of it. Here's some grain. Take it back to your mother-in-law so you don't go back empty-handed. And she, he says that he'll take care of it. Naomi says in verse 18, look at what she says. She says, wait, for the man will not rest until it's settled. There's some significance there. Because what begins to happen in our lives is as we doubt. The reason why we come together here in this place, you may think it's just to hear a good message or to sing some nice songs or just to get out before uh, your afternoon activities. But the job of the local church is to gather together to praise the name of Jesus to be involved in baptizing people as we've done today, to center ourselves around the communion table, and to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Now why do we do that? Ruth heads out, and she knows that the Master's out taking care of what He needs to do. That her place is not to be where the Master's at. He's got His own business to worry about. But what does Ruth do? She goes home and she hangs out with Naomi. Why doesn't she hang out with anybody else? Because Naomi is the only one who has a vested interest in waiting with Ruth as well. Does that make sense? Naomi needs to be redeemed as well. She's a widow. And the answer for Ruth is the same answer for Naomi. Naomi needs Boaz in a different way, but with the redemption model there as clear as day. So what happens? Naomi reassures the one who's waiting. What are we to do as Christians? The reason why we come together is because we are waiting for the coming of our King. The reason why we come together is that we know that this world is going to bring doubts into our mind, is going to bring struggles into our, our faith, where we're going to doubt, and we come together, and what do we do? We get together, and we sing, and we listen to the Word, and what is happening? The same thing that Naomi does to Ruth. As surely as the Lord lives, He's going to do it, just as He said He was. And we articulate to one another, and encourage one another, that the man will not settle until this Man will not rest until this issue is settled. Jesus is not done until he says he's done. And he will not rest until that moment comes. You know, but we struggle with this issue of coming, the coming of the Lord. Because what we begin to do is we see and we articulate the coming of the Lord. And what we want to do is we want to figure out when it's going to happen. We want to figure out when is that day going to come. Ruth does not go with Boaz. That's the master's job, to figure out the ins and outs of the redemption and the culmination of what she's been hoping for. But we as Christians, we have bought millions upon millions upon millions of dollars worth of books that talk in fanciful words about the coming of the Lord, when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, as if someone's been told by God himself, this is how I'm going to do it. And we've got preachers on TV that read the newspaper and instead of using God's word say, well, this is going to happen, so this is going to take place and that's going to happen. And I'll tell you, it's not just today 
But even in the book of Thessalonians, people got fearful that they missed the coming of the Lord. They saw the circumstances going around them. I want to encourage us as a body, first of all, to be uh, involved in the studying of the things that are going to come. We should have a heart for future events, but we should not be, please hear me, we should not be dogmatic about when the coming of the Lord will be. Because if that's what we're going to be dogmatic about, if we're going to talk more about our pre, mid, or post positions, then we have lost what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. When he talks about the coming of the Lord, he speaks of an event and the imminency of that event. He never speaks about the circumstances around that event or what's going to be happening within that culture. He says things are going to be bad. Well, things have been bad for a long time. We only know that it's going to be as the days of Noah. We know the days of Noah were rough times. We're living in rough times. The Lord could come at this moment before I speak the next sentence. There's imminency. But what we don't read is we say, well, Paul, when is this going to happen? Well, it's going to happen. I just heard a very prominent pastor this week say it's 2011. He was wrong when he said it was 2007. Now he's saying 2011. He leads one of the largest churches in Texas. And you say, well, who does that? Who in the right? We do that. When we get into trying to figure out when the coming of the Lord is instead of waiting at the feet of Jesus. Because why? What does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 4? Turn there for a moment. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4. If you're in the book of Ruth, you're going to go a long way to your right. You're going to go through the Gospels. And you're going to find after the Gospels, you're going to find the book of uh, First and Second Timothy. I'm sorry, First and Second Thessalonians and then Timothy and Titus. So look for a T and you're going to be close. First Thessalonians chapter 4. What are we to be talking about when it comes to the coming of our Lord? Are we to worry about the mechanics of it? We don't worry about the exact moment of its coming. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 18. After speaking of the coming of the Lord, he says, Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Turn a page over to 1 Thessalonians 5, 11. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11. Please hear me as you're turning there. What I'm not saying is not that you shouldn't have a position. But be careful that that position isn't a hill that you're willing to die on and break fellowship over. Because there's something more important. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, let us hear this. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in in fact you are doing. Why are we to do this? Because when we speak of the coming of the Lord... Those who are suffering, those who are having struggles, their question isn't whether it's going to happen before the tribulation, middle part of the tribulation, or the end. They just want to get through today. They need hope for today. So what do they do? We come over and we put our arms around a guy like Phil. We sit ourselves down and we say, I want to encourage you, the Lord's coming. The Lord's coming. Does this make sense? The Lord's coming. So your battle with sin will come to an end. Your struggle with all the different dysfunctions and diseases we have as a result of the fall are coming to an end. Why? Because the Lord is coming. Amen? Are you guys sleeping? Am I the only one that's fired up about this? The Lord is coming. Just as Boaz would not rest until it's settled, we have a Savior who will not rest until He comes in the clouds to take us home to be with Him forever. And I hope you wait at His feet. And you say, Lord, whenever it is, I can speculate, Lord, but whenever it is, I want you to come back. And the Bible says, uh, as uh, uh, Pastor Pritchard talked about a couple weeks, when the Lord comes back, will He find faith in the earth? Will He find it in His people? It begins by being at a place and a posture of humility and submission. The second thing we see this morning is that Ruth's fairy tale ending is found, it's found through a special wedding. During that time of waiting, we know Boaz is busy at work finishing up the redemption process. You can read that as we studied it last week in Ruth 4, 1 through 12. But after that redemption is complete, something takes place. Look at uh, Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. The text is very clear. It tells us that Boaz took Ruth. And she became his wife. Now think about this. 
This is a time that is thrilling, and it is a touching time. This is a time that brought thrills and brought people to their uh, hearts being twisted because of the touching uh, ele- uh, element that was involved. Here's a woman who is a foreigner who had nothing when she arrives in uh, Bethlehem, but in a matter of a couple months, she is looked upon with grace and mercy by one of the greatest men in all of Bethlehem, and he marries her. This is a touching time. There's this woman who's a nobody falls in love with one of the greatest men. This is a fairy tale wedding. This is a special wedding. Now, I know the women in this place would have liked to have had more details about the circumstances surrounding the wedding. One of the commentaries said that while the authorship of Ruth is in question, we know that it had to be a man. The reason why it had to be a man is no woman in her right mind would say after this wonderful story of Ruth and Boaz and how they come together, that one sentence, even a half a sentence would say, and they got married. They got married. A woman would say, what was she wearing? What did the church look like? Who was invited? It would ask the question, what song did they dance to at the opening of the reception? Who did her dress? Who did her hair? All those things, and none of it, because a man wrote this probably. He says, who cares? They got married. Boaz showed up. He said, I do. She said, I do. We're done. It's done. One question I had is I wanted to know what was on the menu, who had catered the event. It doesn't tell us. We'll ask the Lord when we get to heaven. But it says that she became his wife. Now, the first thing that we encounter, the reason why this is a thrilling and touching time in this text is what it tells us in the Hebrew. It says, Ruth took, I'm sorry, Boaz took Ruth. This word took gives us a picture that is all too common when you walk by um, book, the book area at your local Walmart, especially along the paperback. Because this word took is a word of chivalry. This is a word of great romance. And you can picture, if you will, for a moment, who is coming, but there's this chiseled man on his horse, this Fabio-looking guy who comes, and there's this damsel in distress, and he's scooping her up into his arms. That is the Hebrew word took in our passage. That is what people were talking about. The author says, hey, they didn't just say, you want to? Yeah, how about you? Yeah, okay, let's do it. This is a romantic time. Now, why does this get written? I believe for one very important reason. Because there is still doubt as to why is Boaz being so kind to Ruth? Why is he doing it? Is he just doing it because it's the right thing to do? Kind of getting into this common law marriage just to take care of Ruth and Naomi? This settles the question. Boaz loves Ruth. You know, it's very similar to our redemption as Christians. Because we could say, well, God, you know what? God saw us in our calamity and our trouble, dead in our trespasses and sin. And because, you know, that's what God is supposed to do, He redeemed us. If that's what you believe about your redemption from God, you're missing the mark. But based on God's love, His mercy. God devoted Himself to us to redeem us back to Himself. Boaz didn't do this just because he had to. He did it because he wanted to. Christ didn't just redeem you because he had to. Christ redeemed you because he wanted to. We see that this wedding was a time, it was a thrilling and touching time that brought glory to the groom. It brought glory to the groom. Think about it for a moment. That great wedding day we are uh, celebrating, I don't know how you you don't celebrate, commemorating the anniversary of Princess Diana's death. And many of us who uh, are old enough to remember the fanfare of that great wedding. And it was a time here where these two uh, royals coming together. And it was a time where the, where the monarchy in Britain was at, at a place of stumbling. But this was redemption, Princess Diana from the Spencer family and Charles, the Prince of Wales, coming together, two young people, a significant sign of the future of the monarchy. Over one billion people, without cable and without satellite TV, watched the wedding. And where was the glory given? The glory was given to the monarchy of Britain. 
How great is this? Look, this is our future king and queen. Likewise, when that wedding took place, it was a place and time for the glory to be given to the groom. People are gathering in. We don't know what exactly happened. The scripture doesn't tell us. But imagine for me with a moment, people are gathering together. This was a pretty special time. And people are gathering. And there's Boaz in his robe hanging out with some of his groomsmen, you know, from the field. And they're all hanging out. And people are coming up and shaking the groom's hand and saying, God bless you. Praise God for what you've done. Praise God for your kindness, your grace and mercy. For not forgetting the orphans and widows in their distress, but bringing in a widow from Moab. Taking Ruth the Moabitess and making your own. It's glory. Glory to you for what you've done. But we see that it didn't just involve the groom, it also involved grace for the bride. Grace for the bride. Ruth comes in and she's getting ready. She's putting on her special dress. She's putting on her special, or she's uh, doing up her special hair. The ladies probably at that time are helping her. And I wonder as she's sitting being prepared for this wonderful time of marriage, I wonder if those things that of her past began to come up. If she began to think about the despair she had when Malon, her first husband, had died. The despair she had when she left her father and her mother and her family and everything that she knew in Moab for the opportunity to be with her bitter mother-in-law began to wonder all those questions I had. And then to remember as she came home that first day in that field and sitting there and saying, Boaz has been kind to us. He's given me grain. I wonder what that means. He's a pretty nice guy. He seems to be well-liked, a man of character, a man of valor, the Scripture tells us. I wonder what this means. And I wonder if that story of redemption began to come up in the bride's mind. And Ruth began to remember you know, I, I remember standing here. Amanda and I were married right here. And I remember coming, Amanda coming down the aisle. And we had a turbulent time because of family issues and struggles uh, in our dating days. Our dating days weren't our most fondest of days as a couple. And I remember when she was walking down the aisle looking forward to what was going to be. Because I remembered as she walked down of what we had been through. And I wonder if that's what Ruth was thinking. What does that mean for us as Christians? There's a marriage day that is coming. Revelation 19 speaks of it. And we know that it will be a time that will bring great glory to the groom. Jesus Christ is going to come and he's going to be dressed as the bridegroom and we will be introduced to the Son by the Father. And it says that we will be dressed in white linens. Turn for a moment to Revelation chapter 19. And let's hear what the Apostle John has to say about it. It's a time of glory. Boaz is being glorified. It's a time where Ruth is remembering her grace. She went from loneliness to love, toil to rest, poverty to wealth, worry to assurance, despair to hope. And that's exactly what we're going to see in Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verses 4 through 9. This is what it says. If you don't know where the book of Revelation is, go to where it says the end. Turn back a couple pages. Revelation 19, 4 through 9. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, here's the glory, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, both great and small. Small and great, there's a dyslexia coming through. Small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of a rushing waters and the like loud peals of thunder. They were shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad. Look at what it says. And give Him, people tell me, glory. Why give Him glory? For the wedding of the Lamb has come. Who's getting married? Jesus Christ. Who is going to be His bride? It says that His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. The fine linen, it says parenthetically, stands for the righteous acts of the saints. So who's the bride? Then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper 
of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Folks, when we get to heaven, God is going to bring his church together. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5 that we are his church, that Christ cares for us, that he takes care of us, that he makes sure that we are blameless and holy before his sight. And he's going to bring us together. And God the Father is going to act as the celestial uh, minister in this wonderful ceremony. And Christ will be there at the brick road of, uh, of made of gold and will stand there and Jesus will wait and God will usher in the bride, you and I, and we will be clothed in white linen because of the righteous deeds that we have done by the power and grace of Christ Jesus. And He'll bring us together and He will finally bring redemption to its final culmination. And as He does that, He will say like a good caterer would say, now let's eat. And I will tell you, It'll be the best food you've ever tasted. It'll be the best music you've ever heard. It'll be the best reception you've ever been a part of. Final thing we see this morning, and I will step down and we will finish our service, is that the fairy tale ending of Ruth focused on a son who ignites worship. Turn back to Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive. She gave birth to a son. Stop there for a moment. After the wedding takes place sometime later, we're not sure how long it is, we see yet another blessing from the Lord. They're given a child. We're told throughout this that the child was a child that ignited worship. Look at verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, this child's grandmother, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. One thing we need to understand, they are not talking about Boaz here. They are talking about this new child. This new child has now become the kinsman redeemer, not for Ruth, but for Naomi not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May this child become famous throughout Israel. Now understand this, just one quick thing. The give, God's giving of us, of children, should always be a place that ignites worship. When you have a child, your first thing you should be doing before you kiss your bride is to praise God. Thank you, God. You are the giver of life. Sadly, we live in a culture that does not praise God at the giving of life. But we try to destroy it. We should praise God for the gift of children. And we know this child's special. He's special because he's got a special mom and dad. And when you've got a special mom and dad, you're pretty special yourself. This boy is special. Verse 17 tells us his name was Obed. Now look at who names him. It's not mom. It's not dad. It's not grandma Naomi. It's the women of the town. He's the only boy in all of Scripture that other people gave him his name other than God himself through an angel like Jesus and John the Baptist or through his parents. He's special. The people of the town named him. Think about doing that when your next child is born. Hey, by the way, we're taking surveys. What do you want our child to be named? Now, Obed is significant very quickly. His name means to worship and to serve. It's a pretty special name. It ignites worship. Why? Because he was special because of the grace that he shows. It was grace. This child would be a sign of God's love, not just to Ruth and Boaz, but to Naomi. Remember Naomi in chapter 1? What does she say? She says, I've come back empty. I left full. God has dealt bitterly with me. Nah, nah, nag, nag, blah, blah. God is bad. He's mean. He's been very difficult with me. And what does God say? Even though we point our finger at God and say, you're no good, God. Even though he says I, that we say we don't like you, God. We don't like your rules. We, like a loving and caring parent, say, even though you say that, I love you. And you know what God does? He gives her a grandson. One that will carry on the name. God has not dealt bitterly with her. He's dealt very graciously with her. Be very careful in your words that you do not point your finger at God and say, God, you've dealt bitterly with me. 
because you never know what God may be working on for tomorrow. It may be a wonderful plan to bring forth a wonderful future. So it's about grace. We see it's a gift as well. The text makes it very clear that God enabled Ruth to have this child. Now there's a question amongst commentaries. Did this mean that Ruth had struggled with infertility? It makes it clear that it seems kind of odd that it makes it very clear that God is the enabler for her to have this child. Usually it just says that so-and-so lied with so-and-so and they gave birth to so-and-so. This says he enabled her. This is a gift. This should remind us that God is the giver of all things, that he enables us to have the blessings that we do. Don't ever think that the good things that come from above are because you have worked in some way to accomplish them. God is the enabler of all blessings. When we talk about the blessings of this church, please don't start saying, well, there's good worship and there's a good children's program and the preaching's pretty good and, and uh, um, you know, the people are pretty nice. No, what enables us to grow? God enables us to grow. It's not about who we are. It's all about God. And when we remember that, just as the writer reminds us, then our focus isn't on Boaz and Ruth, it's on God. When we remind ourselves of that, it's not about who's preaching or who's teaching or who's singing. It's all about God. He enables it. One final thing is that we see that this birth allowed for a special genealogy. Ruth ends on somewhat of a downer. Right when things are at their best, this baby is born. They're holding the, Naomi's holding the baby. She's smiling. She's no longer the bitter uh, woman that she was. Now she's excited. There's a bright future. And all the people come and there's this wonderful, joyous time of all these ladies wooing and loving this little baby. And then what happens? Right when that moment happens, the credits start coming up. By the way, so-and-so begets so-and-so and begets so-and-so and so-and-so. Okay, let's go back to the baby. I like movies that when the credits come up, they're not done. They show all the bloopers. Some of the funniest parts of the movie. I'm like, why didn't you show that during the movie? That's the funny part. Why did you wait till the end? But this is what is written by the author. Now, we learn a couple things very quickly. First, we learn that Boaz has some cool family connections. He's a descendant of Salmon. Who is Salmon? Salmon was the husband of Rahab. We've heard of Rahab, haven't we? Jericho, the prostitute that helps Joshua and Caleb and the spies to infiltrate Jericho. Who's the son? Boaz is. This may help us understand why Boaz was so gracious to a foreigner. His mom was a foreigner. It's easy to understand that. The next thing we see is Obed, this son, is the father to a dude named Jesse. Who's Jesse? Not Jesse, James. This is Jesse. Jesse from Bethlehem. Well, where was Obed from? Bethlehem. Well, who did Jesse have? He had some sons. One's name was David. Pretty cool dude. He became the greatest king in Israel. So we have Ruth and Boaz becoming a great, great, great grandparents of the greatest king of Israel named David. Now you'd say, wow, that's pretty great. That's pretty awesome. But wouldn't you know that the worship that is ignited by this sun is only a foretaste of the sun that would come, that would ignite worship for all of eternity. Turn one more time to Matthew chapter 1, and we're done. I don't want to get out of this book of Ruth. Matthew chapter 1. Right in the middle of your Bible, we get yet another genealogy. I know many of you read the Bible and try to read it through. And uh, one of the things I hear is, man, it's easy to read through the Bible until you get to the genealogies. Those get kind of boring. Let me tell you something. The reason why the genealogies are there aren't just to be there to bore you in your Bible reading for a year, but it's to teach you God's faithfulness throughout the generations. With wonderful accuracy, God says, this is how I've worked. Look at what he says. A record of the genealogy of who? Jesus Christ, the son of David. Then he says, okay, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez. We heard that before. Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Now it's starting to hear the same thing again. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. 
whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, there's our dude, Obed, whose mother was Ruth, there's our friend Ruth, Obed, who now is the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David. Now keep working down, there's a whole bunch of more names there, and get to verse um, 15 and 16. Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathon, Mathon, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, Joseph, the husband of Mary. So who is involved in this genealogy? Ruth and Boaz. To who? Joseph and Mary had a son named Jesus. God's faithfulness to Ruth and Boaz is because of God's faithfulness to all generations. And you know what we learn as we look and as we close out this text? is that you, just like Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, may feel alone. You may feel bewildered. You may feel like nothing's going well for you. You should look at that genealogy and say, God is in control. And He is faithful to finish what He has started. And even though I'm in a place of turmoil, a place of struggle, my God who has redeemed me is faithful to come back one day to take me to be in His home and to marry Him, to make Him, to make us His bride. Let's pray. Father God, we close this book and we thank You for what is contained in it. Father, I pray that the truths of this book would invade our hearts this morning. Father, we've spoken about many things. Waiting on You. Father, there are people that are waiting for numerous things. Waiting for a child. Waiting for a medical report. Waiting upon good news and bad news. Father, we're waiting on the future. All of us are waiting on the coming of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would find ourselves just like Ruth, devoted to her Master, to her Redeemer. Father, let Village Bible Church be a place that waits for the coming of Your, of your Son in a posture of submission and humility and encouraging the saints around us that You will come back. That it is not set, until it is settled, you will not rest. Father, I pray that as we look at this special wedding, we will look with great affection upon the wedding that will take place in the clouds. That we will not believe it to be some fantasy world, but we will believe it to be true. And though people will mock us, that we will say there is a day coming where my redemption will be made complete. And where I will be made the bride of Christ, what my Savior has promised and Lord, we know that as a result of what You've done in Your redemption, that You've brought forth a son. We saw Obed and his significance today in Your family line. But Lord, we know a son was born that ignites the worship of people. And Father, I pray that we would be ignited in our worship. That the promise of Obed would be a promise of a bright future for those involved in the book of Ruth. And likewise, the, uh, the promised gift of Jesus Christ was given as a promise of the good things that will come for all those who call upon the name of the Lord and are saved. So Lord, we close out this book thanking You for what You've given us, the truths that have been given. And we give You glory. For You enabled us to have all good things. And we thank You as the God who gives all things. In Jesus' holy and precious name.